Radar generator motivation. And remember that if we practice the thought training, then no matter what circumstance we're in, whether it's favorable or unfavorable, whether we experience pleasure or pain, we'll be able to transform that situation into one in which we create virtue and in which we practice the path to awakening. And it's possible to do this because our unhappy situations or unfavorable situations all stem from the mind. And when we change the mind, we can change the results that we experience. And especially because if we observe closely so much of our discomfort and dis-ease mentally, is due to our afflictions, and our afflictions are based on distorted conceptions. And so because those conceptions are out of sync with reality, when we can see things in a more realistic view, even conventionally more realistic, let alone ultimately more realistic, then the force of the distorted conceptions declines. We can see things more clearly. And we realize that there is no I to be harmed and no inherently existent thing that is harming us. And so our whole experience changes. So all sentient beings are caught in this cycle of rebirth under the control of ignorance and all these distorted conceptions. And so our long-term aim is to free ourselves from the cycle, eliminate all obscurations on the mind stream so that we can be of the greatest benefit to living beings and be able to help them while they're in samsara and eventually be able to lead them to awakening after we have attained awakening. So generate this long-term aspiration and determination and see that what we're doing tonight is one drop in the bucket, one step on the path going in that direction.
My marker is on page 109, but I thought we were on page... Uh, uh, it's 109, not 107. Okay, because I forgot to... Okay, good. I forgot to move my little place marker last time. Okay, so 109, feelings that accompany afflictions. Okay, so afflictions are in the miscellaneous factors aggregate, and feelings are its own uh, aggregate of feelings. And the word feelings here doesn't mean emotion like the way we usually use the word feelings in English. Rather, it means uh, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or we could say happy, uh, unhappy, suffering, joyful, okay? So, uh, and then, of course, neutral, neither. So, um, you know, feelings are, are just... The feeling aggregate contains just those feelings, but the the feelings of happy, you know, pain, pleasure, and neutral uh, are also related to the afflictions, because depending upon the feelings, we often, usually, react with an affliction in response, and then it goes the other way too that when we have certain afflictions in our mind, they will uh, create happy, unhappy, or neutral feelings. Okay. So, what the book says, previously we discussed one way in which feelings and afflictions are related, uh, that polluted feelings easily provoke afflictions to arise. Okay, so when we say polluted feelings, those are feelings that arise under the influence of ignorance and the latencies of ignorance. Okay, and uh, so these polluted feelings easily provoke afflictions. When we are unhappy, anger and malice may soon follow. True or not true? Yeah. Anybody here happy? Wouldn't feel happy when they get angry? Okay. Um, Okay, so here feelings in that case, that example, feelings are causes for afflictions. And for this reason, we are advised to maintain a happy mind. Okay, so I think I mentioned to you before that so many of my teachers say, uh, you know, when we go into that, and to see them with our problems about this and that, uh, they say, uh, you know, just have a happy mind. And we would usually look at them like, well, if I had a happy mind, I wouldn't be coming and asking for advice. <laughs> okay? <laughs> but, uh, you know, what it points us to, because I've thought about this a lot, because many of my teachers have said that, is, you know, how do we make ourselves have a happy mind? We can't just say, be happy, be happy, when we feel miserable. Okay? When we look at the thought that is behind an affliction, and we realize that all of this really doesn't have much to do with reality, then if we can drop it, 
there's the possibility of having a happy mind. Okay. Now, why can't we just drop it? Because we are right, and my emotions, you know, are right. They're the only possible thing any sane person in this universe would feel. And my emotions are mine. And if you just tell me to just drop it and be happy, you're not understanding me. You're not hearing me. <gasps> right? Is that how you react? Yeah? You aren't understanding me. You aren't hearing me. You're, re you're, yeah, you're, you, you're just, this is what's always going on between us, you know. You just dismiss my feelings and you don't care. Hmm? Okay. Um, it, it, we can play the drama pretty well. We've done it many times. Yes. Okay. And so, you know, even we hear in Dharma teachings, oh, you can, you know, release an affliction. Uh, we say, oh, yes, that sounds very good, very wonderful. Yes, thought training practices are fantastic. I will definitely do them. My anger is not very unrealistic. I'm blaming people when it's not really their fault. And we say this when our mind is nice and calm. And as soon as a situation happens, we flip, <laughs> you know, and we are entrenched in our emotion. Okay. And not only are we entrenched in our emotion, but, like I said, we feel it's correct. How I'm feeling is correct. There is nothing in my mind that is exaggerated or unrealistic. Okay? Especially with anger. Yeah? When you're angry, are you ever wrong? Oh, goodness, no. Never. Yeah. Well, we're, angry, you know, who, we're never wrong. Yeah? And the solution is always very simple. Because we're right, because we're seeing the situation as an objective event out there, we're not projecting anything on it. It does this talk of inherent existence and distorted conceptions. That's what the other person is doing. But I'm seeing an objective reality. And it's the actual solution to our conflict is very simple. Yeah. I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, and you change. Yeah. You just realize how wrong you are, and you do things my way. See, it's very simple, because it's your mind that's distorted, not my mind. Hmm? And then we come in, and we hear Dharma teachings, and it's, oh, yes, you know, uh, yeah, ignorant uh, anger is based on self-grasping. Yes, that's true. And it's based on seeing things as permanent. That's true. And it's based on uh, all these other exaggerations. That's true. Yeah. But. It's always the but, isn't it? Yeah. In the middle of the situation, 
our dharma is out the window. Okay? Same thing with attachment, isn't it? There's some person or some object and, you know, no big deal. Yeah, you know that red-hot sports car that you're getting when you have a middle-aged identity crisis? Yeah. Or that fantastic person that you've been waiting your whole life to meet? Yeah. So when you, you first meet them, no big deal. See the car? Yeah, it's nice. Then you start thinking about it. Oh, that red sports car. <sighs> if I rode a red sports car, then people would look at me in a certain way. And then that person, who, after all, yeah, that's the kind of person I should be uh, with, with to match the kind of job I have and the kind of person I am. Yeah, so yeah, they're pretty hot stuff. They and the sports car go together. And then you have attachment, and you've got to go out and get the sports car, and you've got to go out and get that person. And then somebody, you know, tells you, you you come come to a Dharma teaching, and you hear about, oh, you know, when you're attached to someone or something, there's exaggeration. You're projecting good qualities that aren't there. Or you're projecting that that person, that or that situation, or that object, is has the nature of happiness and is going to make you everlastingly happy forever. Like the like you know, like we learned in the fairy tales when we were little, yeah. and then we we go for it, and you know. Wait, nothing's wrong with my mind. I'm seeing everything totally accurately. Yeah. But if we were seeing everything totally accurately, then when we got all of our objects of attachment, we should be content and satisfied. Not just in that moment, but forever. Because that object has happiness in it. That other person has happiness in it. So when I get those, yeah, then I get the happiness. And as long as I, you know, make it so I'm never separated from them, then it's good. Okay. What's your experience been when you get objects of attachment? Either possessions or people fantastic, you know, uh, you get the corner office or your version of the corner office. You get to go, you know, you get the new skis, you get the arrays, you get some certificate or honor, and, you know, they announce your name somewhere. 
Yeah. How do you feel? Where's that cloud? Because I'm floating on it. Yeah. But there's no exaggeration in my mind. And if that were the case, why do those things never leave us completely satisfied? Yeah? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. You know? Why are we never satisfied? Is it because something's wrong with the object? Yeah? So I just leave that object and go and get the latest model. Is that it? The new iPhone that has some, you know, the old iPhone brought me happiness for a while, but now it's old. I want the new iPhone. Okay. Yeah, so if it has happiness, why are we always dissatisfied? And are we going to spend our whole lives chasing all these things? Okay, so it's, it's, it's quite interesting, you know, when your mind is just overwhelmed with, I need, I need, I want, I need. And sometimes that emotional need is really strong. I need love, I need appreciation, I need, I need, I need somebody to look at me and say some sweet words. You know? And then we get that, and then, yeah? See, we're mentioning it doesn't fill the hole inside, does it? There's still the hole inside. Okay, so one thing the masters say is, yeah, it's really a great relief when you have some itchy something to scratch it. That's happiness. But wouldn't it be better not to have the itch? Okay, so rather than run around uh, like a chicken without its head, looking for that object that's going to uh, soothe the itch of attachment. What would happen if we got rid of attachment? If we didn't have the itch of attachment. So it's quite interesting, uh, and I think very enlightening, to look and see, you know, ask ourselves, examine whether how we're thinking of an object is actually accurate and is actually uh, the qualities that that object has. Yeah. What we're painting, very beautiful, is that person or object or situation, really that beautiful? What we're painting as so awful, is it really that awful? Or what about the distorted conceptions, the exaggeration in our mind? Because remember, 
when we define either attachment or uh, or anger, both of them begin with, yeah, arising due to um, inappropriate attention or distorted conception. And in the case of attachment, that overestimates the good qualities of the object. And in the case of up, being upset or angry, over estimates the the uh, badness of the object. Yeah, so right away in the definition of, of attachment and anger, it's telling us that there's something that is not very realistic going on because there's exaggeration. But, hey, we believe the exaggeration and we feel so good. Okay, so maintain a happy mind. If we can drop the attachment, drop the anger, the jealousy, the arrogance, whatever, then the mind is peaceful. Yeah, Getting whatever it is that that affliction is craving does not make the mind peaceful. Or it may satisfy something for a moment, but the moment after that, the mind is not peaceful. Okay? You get this, you get your new iPhone, you know? Whenever they release, I was in New York one time, when they release some new iPhone, and we walked past the iPhone store, and the line was going all the way here and around the block. You know, these people waiting in line to get the latest iPhone. And I'm going, I'm so happy I don't have a phone. (laughs) So you get your phone. But then you're back where you started from. Yeah, you get whatever it is you're craving. And then you're back where you started from. Okay, you retaliate when somebody hurts, hurts you. And then you're back at still feeling angry and hurt. Okay. Okay, so maintain a happy mind. Release whatever the mind's holding. In the second way that um, feelings and afflictions are related, uh, they are simultaneous. That is, feelings accompany afflictive mental states. So attachment in the desire realm is accompanied by pleasant feeling. Yeah? You get what you want. Pleasant feeling. Anger and animosity are accompanied by unpleasant feeling. This may be one reason why we are less willing to apply the antidotes to attachment. Because when there's attachment, we feel happy. So who wants to apply an antidote? (laughs) Yeah, let's just enjoy the happiness. When we're angry, okay, you know, yeah, uh we may try an antidote, but we'd much rather retaliate. Um, but, you know, we're un- sometimes we're unhappy enough to try an antidote. Uh, one of the emotions that I find ex- particularly painful is jealousy. 
Yeah, I don't know about you, but jealous when I when jealousy arises in my mind, it's like oh, I want to apply an antidote because this mind's mental state is just too awful. I don't want to stay in this. Okay, so you may have your own special, uh, particularly awful uh, affliction. <laughs> okay, so I uh, okay. So any of these three feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, may accompany ignorance. So mental happiness and mental unhappiness may accompany wrong views. If someone believes non-virtuous actions have no result, he is happy. I can go get my revenge and there's no negative karma created. I'm happy. But if he thinks virtuous actions bring no result, he's unhappy. Oh, uh, I was generous, but it's not going to bring any good result for me. Uh, Why did I give that away? Okay. So mental unhappiness accompanies doubt. Okay, Because being indecisive is unpleasant. Is that true? Do you? Is it unpleasant for you being indecisive? Yeah. Will you stay in a state of indecisiveness a lot, a long time? Why? Why? Why do we stay in doubt and indecisiveness? Because of attachment to my idea of there being one right thing or the best source of happiness. And so I'll stay in that uh, unpleasant spot of trying to figure out what is the right, one right way, what is the one source of happiness that I'm trying to get. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? We stay in a mental state in which we are unhappy because what we're looking for is the thing that will give us the greatest amount of happiness. And, you know, we don't want to choose something that will bring the second greatest amount of happiness when we could have chosen the one that brings the greatest amount. So we'd much rather stay on the fence and be miserable. It's quite reasonable. Isn't our mind reasonable and realistic? Or are we a bit nuts? Okay. One thing I know for myself, studying uh, the afflictions and, and looking, you know, examining them in my mind, is I learned that, um, yeah, my mind is not very in touch with reality, even though I think it is. And it's rather shocking when you really think about it. Really shocking and horrifying to see how much we believe what we think and what we, our emotions. When most of it is just made up garbage. It's, It's our own version of the big lie. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a different version actually, like Velma Lamsel, um, from Velma Lamsel is um, rather, um, I have a lot of experiences with self-doubt and um, 
uh, trying to figure out a solution with the support of the environment, you know, trying to figure out the answer from outside rather within. And I know some people who have the same problem, they have no access uh, to the inner world, no confidence within, and so making that mm -hmm. decision, being doubtful for years after years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. The joy of being neurotic. <laughs> yeah. Stay in that state of... Constant dissatisfaction. Okay. A happy feeling accompanies arrogance and the other four afflictive views. When we're arrogant, we're happy, aren't we? Look at me. I'm so good. I got an Olympic medal. They all hold their thing. I have an Olympic medal. <laughs> Some of them, you watch. Well, that's what they're doing. My Olympic medal. You know? Yeah? Does that make you a good human being? Does that make you feel fulfilled inside? I mean, it's lovely to watch all these people be happy, you know, because they work so hard and they train so much, and so they actualize what they got. It's lovely to see them happy. But what are you happy about? I'm, I can swim faster than somebody else. I can throw, what's that spear-like thing? Uh, what? Javelin. Javelin? I thought a javelin was round. That's the disc. That's the disc. Well, I can throw something <laughs> further than everybody else. You know, or whether it's a javelin or a disc or, yeah, or, oh, the shot, shot put. <laughs> okay, I'm just practicing with the logs in the forest, you know, that's enough for me. <laughs> You know, but you look, and, and just the emotion around where that ball is, whether, or the badminton little thing, you know? What? Birdie. Shuttlecock? Birdie? I don't know, that thing. You know? Like, where is it? Because i got to hit it. And where is that soccer ball? And where is that softball? And I've got to make sure it's here and not two inches there. You know, it's got to be right exactly here in between the goalpost. It cannot be there. Yeah? And the basketball, you know? Like, yeah? Because if I can make this basket and my team wins, then Nike is going to give me a whole lot of money to advertise its shoes. And in addition, I have this. Does each player get a gold medal or just the team? Just 
Each player? You know from experience. <laughs> yes? <laughs> okay. Okay, so arrogance, we are happy, aren't we? We're better than somebody else. Oftentimes, for me, when arrogance arises, it's mixed. It's tainted with a little bit of, uh, it doesn't feel so good. Mm-hmm. There's gloating, but there's not, it's not completely happy. Well, what, is, what doesn't feel good in, when you're feeling arrogant? I know there's something fishy about it. <laughs> Self-doubt? <laughs> <laughs> Arrogance has a kind of smell to it, doesn't it? It's a little stinky. You know, it's, it's, it's just not pure happiness. But attachment is? That's what we think, isn't it? Attachment brings pure happiness, pure joy. Well, but attachment has giddiness with it, and that's what we identify, I think, as, as real happiness. It's that excitement and giddiness. But I don't get that with arrogance often. Uh-huh. Okay. How about other people? How do you feel when arrogance is there? I was thinking with attachment that can have uh, anxiety about losing the object or not getting it. Yeah, that comes, you have the attachment and the happiness, then that gives way to the anxiety Okay. and the unpleasantness of the anxiety. And arrogance can have an underlying lack of confidence going on that can be a subtle... Uh, a more subtle form of misery that's mm-hmm. present there. Yeah. I think arrogance is at the expense of somebody else. Mm-hmm. I'm better than him or her or them. And and I think that's what gives the uh, feeling. We feel a little bit guilty. Not, not so nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the similar thought, that there's shades of arrogance. I mean, there's many different types, right? But there's shades. So, so if it's kind of subtle and you just feel a little puffed, that's happy. But once that, um, in the lion of pride, when uh, uh, the first Dalai Lama, I think, is talking yeah. about the, the lion of contempt, that contempt mind has anger in it too. I mean, or some that judgmental mind comes as a piece of it, and then that's right. not so nice. But but you have to differentiate all the different mental states. You start out with arrogance, then the arrogance stops, and you get the, you know, the contempt. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we we have to to look at how the different um, mental states, different afflictions, relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they sometimes we go from one to the next, and and that's why we think you know it's all one, but it's uh, it actually can be very several different mental states. Best arrogance is when you don't even know you're being arrogant. <laughs> it's like completely not in yeah. your radar at yeah. all. You That's just think true. you're being you and this is how it is and mm-hmm. uh, I'm smart and I'm pretty and I'm rich so blah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, And then when somebody tells you that you're conceited, you're like, what? Yeah. I remember the first time in sixth grade 
Yeah, I talk about sixth grade a lot. Um, you know, somebody told me I was conceited in sixth grade, and I was like, no, I'm not conceited. You know, totally out to lunch. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm just like, smart, so. (laughs) (laughs) I can't add the pretty one on, but the smart one, okay, you know, yeah, so. What? The rest, as she said, and the rest of you aren't. Oh, mm, that that came on. That comes yeah, that comes after. First is I'm smart. Mom and dad are happy. Okay, mom and dad are happy. Then comes, you know, the other people aren't so smart. So that makes me even smarter. Yeah, no, then I felt so bad, and I thought, oh, nobody's going to like me if I'm conceited. So then I started trying to act non-conceited. You know, it, it, I didn't drop my conceit. I just tried to not act so conceited. Because <laughs> I wanted people in sixth grade to like me. Yeah, do you remember sixth grade? Yeah, didn't you desperately want everybody to like you? Hmm? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay, a happy feeling accompanies arrogance and the other four afflictive views. However, if the mind of a person in the desire realm is unclear... All ten root afflictions are accompanied by a neutral feeling. Okay. Because if the if the mind's unclear, none of the afflictions are going to be real strong at that point. The Pali Abhidhamma says that all consciousnesses rooted in anger are accompanied by mental unhappiness. That means that whenever our minds are unhappy, anger is present, even at a subtle level, and this mental state is non-virtuous. Actually, there's no pervasion there, yeah, that if if you're unhappy, no, that means that whenever we are unhappy, there's no pervasion that when we are unhappy, Yeah, well, it it says that all consciousnesses rooted in anger are accompanied by mental unhappiness. That doesn't mean all consciousnesses experiencing mental unhappiness are angry. Okay, but I remember, you know, reading this and and writing to Bhikkhu Bodhi and asking him, does that mean that whenever our minds are unhappy, anger is present? And he said, yes because I was really horrified by that, you know, to think about that. And then, you know, when I do think about that, you know, if I'm angry, yeah, am, uh, or if I'm unhappy, am I ever satisfied? Am I ever... Yes? What about when we're sad, we're not happy then, but that's not necessarily anger? Um... 
Well, see, that's the tricky thing. It's not anger, but there's some of, there could be some aversion to the feeling, some pushing away and rejection of the feeling. Yeah. I tend to think unhappiness is a subtle kind of anger. You know, if, mm-hmm. if I'm unhappy with the weather, if I'm unhappy because of all this smoke in the air, you know, it's like, that's a kind of aversion. I don't like that. Yeah. That's why I'm unhappy. So there is a... And I was also thinking about Shanti Deva. I can't remember the exact words, but close to the beginning of chapter six, he talks about anger finds its fuel in an unhappy mind. In unhappiness, So right. I think it's like when your mind is unhappy, it's just kind of on the verge of... <laughs> yeah, it goes to anger very easily. Yeah. yeah. And it can be, I mean, like you said, a subtle kind of anger where annoyed, we're irritated, we have aversion. doesn't mean we're raging. Yeah. Okay. But then to think that whenever I'm unhappy, I'm creating non-virtue. That is a big motivator to get out of that unhappy mental state with anger because, you know, who wants to sit and create non-virtue? Yeah? Yeah, it's just exactly like we were speaking about metta today and for me that it was exactly a practice who made that very visible. How, when I'm actually not in that friendly state, there is actually, the other state is kind of aversion. It's mm-hmm. uh, kind of a no can yeah. be very subtle, but there's some kind of a no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, a no. Yeah. And, and no maybe too. that's what we call a bad mood. Yeah. Yeah, I remember in, in the um, Mind and Life conferences one time, uh, this is a long time ago, that somebody asked, well, what about moods? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and are moods afflictions? What are, are moods feelings? You know, what are moods? There wasn't a clear answer, but it really, you know, it makes me think about it. And very often, you know, moods, there's some kind of, uh, you know, there may be a subtle feeling and a subtle affliction, both of them together. And I'm not quite sure what causes what. Yeah. But, you know, when you wake up in a bad mood, so there's unhappiness, and then there's also, you're grumpy. Yeah. So it seems like moods might be low levels of afflictions. Yeah. You wake up in a bad mood, you're grumpy, but if you don't take care of that mood and that unhappiness, then you could really, you know, you go to work and you start screaming or whatever. Yeah. Or you don't wait until you go to work to scream. <laughs> okay. Um, where were we? Okay. To the contrary, virtuous mental states are accompanied by either a happy feeling or equanimity. Consciously steering our thoughts so that they are constructive, uh, brings not only happiness or equanimity, but also creates virtuous karma. 
when we act with genuine generosity or ethical restraint, our mind is happy here and now, and we create the cause for happiness in the future. I think the key word there is genuine. Okay? When we really give with uh, an open heart and with because we want to give, then our mind is happy giving. When we give because we feel obliged or we're afraid people will look down on us uh, and call us a cheapskate or whatever, then we may give, but the mind is unhappy. So I think that, you know, it's, it's really here when we act with genuine generosity, you know, or the same with ethical, uh, ethical restraint. If we, uh, you know, there's a situation we're tempted to go in, you know, act in, the, in a deluded way, and we say, whoa, you know, I'm going to stop myself. And then afterwards you go, that was good, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't do that. Uh, then, you know, this is genuine ethical restraint. You feel content afterwards. But if you're keeping precepts and you go, oh, God, all my friends are going out to drink and I can't go drink with them because I have this precept. So you restrain yourself from doing the action, but you're actually unhappy and angry about it. That's because it's not genuine from the heart restraint. It's you know, we're doing a guilt trip on ourselves. <laughs> Anybody here do guilt trips? Oh, just a few people. Oh, that's just a few of you. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Two people raise their hand. Oh, very good. Very good. <laughs> Of course, when training in these practices, we may not be continually happy because afflictions sometimes interfere. But as we continue to practice, afflictions will wane and virtue and joy will increase. And that's true, you know, as we really train the mind and see the benefit in creating virtue and abandoning non-virtue, then our mind becomes much happier. Of the auxiliary afflictions and variable mental factors that become non-virtuous, okay? So those auxiliary afflictions and variable mental factors, okay, uh, that become non-virtuous. Regret, jealousy, belligerence, harmfulness, resentment, and spite are accompanied by mental unhappiness. True? Yeah, you don't say, oh, I feel so good today. I think I'm going to go be belligerent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, miserliness being an aspect of attachment is accompanied by a pleasant feeling. I'm holding on to it. But then that very easily goes into another emotion of 
uh, I'm miserly, miserly and selfish, and I don't—it's uh, awful being like that. I hope nobody notices, but on the other hand, I am glad that I'm able to keep this thing and not give it away. Do you ever feel like that? Huh? Okay, either mental happiness or unhappiness may accompany deceit, pretension, concealment, and sleep. <laughs> because when those four mental factors do not accomplish the pur purpose that is their object, the mind becomes unhappy. Okay? So, when you want to <laughs> deceive somebody and uh, pretend not to have faults that you have, uh, but you don't succeed in convincing somebody of that, then you're really down. Or you want to pretend you have good qualities that you don't have, but you don't succeed, then that's a bummer. Okay? A concealment, you know, you want to conceal your faults. Yeah, we're, we're at Socha, you know, Posada, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, conceal the fault, and then somebody says, oh, but didn't you do da-da-da-da-da? And it's like, yeah. Okay, so unpleasant feeling arises. And sleep, when sleep doesn't accomplish your purpose. Yeah, you're exhausted, and you want to rest, and you sleep, and you wake up more tired. Huh? Okay, haughtiness is usually accompanied by happiness, although above the third dhyana, neutral feeling is present. Lack of integrity, inconsideration for others, lethargy, and restlessness may be accompanied by any of the five feelings, physical and mental happiness, physical and mental unhappiness, and neutral feeling. And the neutral feeling may accompany any of the afflictions. For example, if the affliction is not very strong. So it's good. I'm, I'm not making examples of all of these. But, you know, afterwards, go back and go through this and make examples of, you know, the uh, for lethargy, when you feel mental unhappiness and, uh, or, phys or physical unhappiness, you know, things like that, okay? Very helpful to make your own examples. There is no physical or mental unhappiness in the form and formless realms. So when you have these very deep states of, of samadhi, uh, your mind doesn't tend to, uh, you know, physical or mental unhappiness. Because the samadhi, to gain those states of samadhi, you have to have re uh, suppressed the gross afflictions. So when the gross afflictions are re uh, suppressed, then they don't make your mind uh, unhappy. Okay, uh, and so the afflictions in the form and formless realm are ethically neutral because they are weak. Of the dhyanas, the first three are accompanied by the feeling of bliss, which is a type of happy feeling, and the fourth by a neutral feeling. 
So formless realm absorptions are accompanied by only neutral feeling. So what's interesting is that neutral feeling is often seen to be more fulfilling than happy feeling. Because in happy feelings, even with these uh, states of uh, dhyana or concentration, where you still have the happy or blissful feeling, there's, uh, you know, this thing about giddiness. The mind isn't peaceful. There's some, you know, tension in there. Uh, whereas at the fourth dhyana, then that uh, that giddiness, that edge on the happiness is gone, and it's neutral feeling, which is more satisfactory, apparently. Okay, form, yeah, okay. Then the reflection for this. Okay, first step, practice identifying the various virtuous and non-virtuous mental factors as they arise in your mind. So this can keep you busy for a while. If you ever get a, a bored, okay, I, you know, Buddhism is does not make you bored. There's always something to to look at in your own mind, okay? And then, uh, so identify the different, you know, mental states, what's virtuous, what's not, as they arise in your mind. And then second, observe the feelings that accompany each one. And then third, how does the feeling of happiness that arises with attachment to sensual objects differ from the happiness that accompanies generosity or genuine affection and care? Yeah. So that's a good question. Yeah. What are the different feelings of happiness when you're attached versus when... Uh, you know, you're being genuinely generous or when you have genuine care for somebody that's not based on attachment. Yeah, the, the feelings of happiness and contentment are quite different, aren't they? Yeah. With attachment, there's you're happy, but there's this, <laughs> this kind of quality to it, isn't there? I want more. I want better. I don't want to lose this. It is exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, then the next section is the ethical dimension of afflictions. Ooh, they have ethical dimensions. Mm. Not all afflictions are non-virtuous. By themselves, ignorance, view of a personal identity, and view of extremes are neutral. Okay, they are not non-virtuous because by themselves they lack the capacity to produce pain. Okay, it's when ignorance or view of a personal identity or the uh, um, the view of the extremes uh, is in a um, a consciousness that is accompanied by some other affliction that then it becomes. Uh, non-virtuous. Yeah, and in addition, these three do not always give rise to non-virtuous mental states. So what is an example of uh, 
ignorance arising and it not giving rise to a non-virtuous mental state. Yeah, when you do a virtuous action. So you can still have ignorance or view of a personal identity that is grasping at the inherent existence of yourself or the object or the action when you're doing a virtuous action. Okay? So that's why, you know, those those grasping minds are not necessarily non-virtuous. By themselves, they're neutral. The treasury of knowledge speaks of mixed and unmixed ignorance. Okay, so this is from the Vibhasaka viewpoint. Mixed ignorance assists and accompanies the other five root afflictions and shares five similarities with them. Okay, just an example of ignorance in a consciousness with the uh, other, any of the other five root afflictions. Okay, so they share five similarities. So they depend on the same cognitive faculty. So, uh, you know, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. They have the same object. They're generated in the same aspect of that object. They occur at the same time, and they have the same entity. And the footnote... says, see the foundation of Buddhist practice, chapter (laughs) 3. And that gives you more uh, about what the five similarities are. Okay. So ignorance shares the same primary consciousness with all of the root and auxiliary afflictions. Okay, an example uh, is the ignorance that shares the primary Uh, consciousness with attachment. This ignorance, as well as the primary consciousness and other mental factors uh, in that that whole assembly, uh, become non-virtuous by the power of attachment being non-virtuous. Okay, so what we're talking about here, yeah, um, primary consciousness is a consciousness that just knows the basic Uh, nature of the object, okay? So a visual consciousness sees sights, auditory consciousness hears sounds, olfactory consciousness smells smells, gustatory consciousness tastes tastes, tactile consciousness feels heat, cold, hunger, thirst, these kinds of things. And then the mental consciousness, um, you know, can experience all of those, yeah? When um, ignorance, okay, I'm trying to think according to Vibhasaka. Um, for the, I know for the Prasangika, ignorance does, would not accompany any of the five sense consciousnesses, only the mental consciousness. And it's probably the same way for the, for the Vibhasakas. Hmm? Or do they, do they say... Well, I, I remember that they do say that uh, attachment and anger can accompany uh, the five sense consciousnesses. Five senses. So probably the same is true for ignorance. Okay. 
Okay, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting because the, according to the Prasangika, all these other afflictions are conceptual minds. So they would only be uh, by the mental, mental consciousness. Yeah. But we don't feel, when we have anger or attachment or jealousy or pride, we don't feel like that's a conceptual consciousness, do we? Yeah. We think this is, you know, it's in my bones, we feel it. (laughs) But it's a conceptual consciousness, meaning that there's thought behind it. There's some kind of thought, story, expectations, something uh, misconstruing the situation. Okay. So when you have the primary consciousness and ignorance accompanies with it, and one of the other uh, root afflictions is also there with that, in that same uh, mental state, and they all share these five similarities, then that mental state is, uh, if it's, you know, the, there's an affliction of anger and, or hatred, that makes the whole mental state negative, non-virtuous. Yeah, if there's uh, goodwill, then it can make the whole mental state virtuous, even though there's ignorance in that. So that's mixed ignorance. Okay, then there's unmixed ignorance, and it doesn't share the five similarities with any of the non-virtuous afflictions and is ethically neutral. Okay, so uh, examples of unmixed ignorance are the ignorance uh, accompanying the view of a personal identity, the view of the extremes, and the, the ignorance mistaking a pen for a stick. Okay, so none of those, they're unmixed uh, because the ignorance doesn't share, uh, you know, those five qualities with uh, an affliction. Okay, that it, the ignorance, so here we see there's many different kinds of ignorance, yeah? The ignorance that is the first of the 12 links of dependent origination is unmixed ignorance. Okay, so that ignorance is the first link is neutral. Yeah, then depending upon what other mental factors arise, yeah, the you can it can that neutral that neutral mind of ignorance can phase into a non-virtuous mind, which creates negative karma. It can phase into a virtuous mind, which creates positive karma. Okay, but that first link itself which is what we want to cut, is itself neutral. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we usually think root of ignorance, you know, that must be really non-virtuous. I want to clobber that one. But it's ethically neutral. But being ethically neutral doesn't mean it's okay. It's still incredibly dangerous because under the influence of that ignorance, we can generate a lot of non-virtue by the ignorance stimulating 
a non-virtuous mental factor. Okay, so um, so when this first link, ignorance, yeah, when it gives rise to anger, greed, or any other non-virtuous mental factor, this new mental state, okay, is no longer the first link. Okay, so uh, you have ignorance arise, and then uh, you th- then you think I you know I want to give a gift, and I feel really good and happy about it. And so then you have a mental state, you know, that is a virtuous one uh, due to, you know, the mental factors of non-attachment and a feeling of generosity and care and so on. Okay, that new mental state is not the first link. It's also not the second link. It's link one and a half somewhere, (laughs) okay? Uh, They don't really give it a number, but it's somehow between those, okay? So this new mental state is accompanied by ignorance and is non-virtuous if it gives rise to anger, greed, pride, jealousy, something like that. So it is non-virtuous due to the power of the other afflictions that accompany it. It leads to a non-virtuous formative action that is the actual second link. Okay? So ignorance then stimulating a virtuous or non-virtuous mental factor, which makes that whole mental state virtuous or non-virtuous. And then by the power of that, that will give rise to virtuous or non-virtuous karma. And so that's the second link of formative action. Okay, yeah, and so those are, you know, at the beginning of every cycle of the 12 links. Ignorance and formative action. Formative action means karma, okay? And it's a special kind of karma because it's the karma that is strong enough to throw a rebirth, not all karma are the second link. Okay, it has to have the power, be strong enough to go throw you into another, propel you into another rebirth. All afflictions of the desire realm are non-virtuous except unmixed ignorance, view of a personal identity, and view of extremes, which are neutral. All afflictions of the upper realms, the form and formless realms, are neutral. A degree of intensity is needed for an affliction to be non-virtuous. Since the afflictions of beings in the upper realms are refined, they lack the intensity required to create non-virtuous karma that ripens into painful experiences. Okay. So when you're in, after you're born in the formless or formless realm, you're not going to be actively creating negative karma. But after your karma to be born there expires, then due to previously created negative karma, you're going to probably fall down. This is all very technical, you know, and requires some concentration and making examples of it. 
But um, it's actually, it's talking about our own experience. And so for that reason, it's helpful to learn it and, and think about it uh, as a tool to understanding our experience. To apply this to the prasangika view, now it's going to get more complicated, because uh, that was the vibhasakas. Now the prasangikas are the good guys. Okay, we want to be on their team. They had, they got the gold medal. Um, okay, so uh, according to the prasangikas, the first link ignorance that precedes a virtuous formative karma, such as gener- generosity, is unmixed ignorance uh, that grasps the agent, object, and action as inherently existent. So grasping at inherent, uh, something as inherently existent in and of itself is not non-virtuous, but it sets the stage, okay? But it can also set the stage for uh, a virtuous mental factor arising. You know, like you can, uh, an example would be, uh, I'm being generous, you know, and there's this big feeling of I, you know, I'm being generous. I'm really working hard to overcome my generosity. Okay, there's self-grasping there, but it's a virtuous mental state. You're rejoicing at your own virtue. Okay, so that unmixed ignorance that grasps the agent, object, and action as inherently existent is ethically neutral. This ignorance gives rise to a virtuous mental state, such as compassion, that motivates the constructive action of generosity, which is the second link. During the time of giving the gift, grasping inherent existence may continue, because you're thinking you, the gift, and the action are inherently existent, or we may simply apprehend ourselves the offering and the recipient without grasping them as either inherently existent or non-inherently existent. Okay. In the former case, grasping them as inherently existent, the mental state grasping inherent existence is neutral, and it is a different mental state than the one that is generous, which is virtuous. So in that case, You have the ignorance in one mental state and the generosity in the next mental state. They're not together in the same same one. Okay? Usually, there are ways in which they say that that, uh, virtuous mental states uh, can grasp inherent existence, but we're going to get into that in, in volume nine, and we're only in volume three right now. Okay, <laughs> so um, okay. So in the former case, the mental state grasping inherent existence is neutral and is a different mental state than the one that is generous which is virtuous, and that comes subsequent to the neutral one. Although the two mental states are closely related in time, they do not occur simultaneously. Okay, we're done with that section. Yes. (laughs) 
Uh-huh. I seem to remember that according to Prasangika, ignorance is never simultaneous with afflictions like attachment and anger. Is yeah, in gen- in general it isn't. But in volume nine, <laughs> when we get there. We're not there yet. Yeah. <laughs> but so then I would think I was thinking that in that case, ignorance would always be unmixed. Um, yeah, if it, if it isn't, what does it say? Until we get here? to volume nine. Huh? <laughs> what? Well, until we get to volume nine. <laughs> yeah, because ignorance, unmixed ignorance means ignorance that is not simultaneous right. with, a, with one of the afflictions like anger. Right. And so if, according to Prasangika, Ignorance can never be simultaneous with anger. It gives rise to anger, but it does. It's no longer. Yeah, in there. general, that's the in case. In general, so that means in general. In general, whenever you say in general, unmixed. it gives you an out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. So in general, yes, it is like that. That ignorance is not simultaneous with the with the other one. But there's speci- a special kind of thing. I don't. I, I don't want to explain it now because it's it's kind of strange and I don't want to make a mistake, you know, explaining it. I'd rather go over. Can you say that mixed ignorance is not a prasangika term or view? Like Let, it is. Let's just leave okay. it with what I said. Okay. Okay. You can't say that. And then when we get to volume nine, <laughs> then we can, you know, look at at the other things. Okay. Because I don't want to guess when I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. But maybe check up yourself. Also, what's interesting is sometimes ignorance gives rise to grasping a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, and that gives rise to an affliction or to a virtuous state. There's also that. Okay, page 112. Are you asking a question about that? (laughs) Yeah, what's your question? So if affliction, if ignorance gives rise to a neutral mental state and a neutral action, then it's not the first link because that's not right. going anywhere. Right. Okay. Yeah. Or if the anger or the generosity is very weak, then it's not gonna it's not strong enough to produce this the second link. Uh, you might remember when we studied karma at the end of volume two, then uh you know it was saying that the karmas that have the power to throw a rebirth or propel a rebirth have to have all four parts complete. And if not, if all four, four parts aren't complete, then it may um, pre, uh, be a completing karma or, you know, cause some other kind of result. Okay. Counterforces to the afflictions. Okay. So whether we follow a religion or not, we can see that afflictions interfere with our personal happiness as well as the well-being of society in general. 
I love this, how His Holiness will talk about something incredibly detailed and technical, and then talk about something that we all understand in the next breath. Yeah, and then go back to the detail. Okay, so most harmful events among individuals, groups, or nations are rooted in ignorance and motivated by hatred, greed, arrogance, jealousy, and so forth. These afflictions are the causes of killing, robbery, sexual abuse, political and financial scandals, prejudice, injustice, and inequality. So all of our social problems come from the original thing is ignorance and the uh, non-virtuous afflictions. Okay, the whole thing that is completely, you know, when you look at when you look at all the problems that what everybody's discussing in the paper and all the things that need to be done uh, in society, uh, why don't why are there all these disturbing things going on because of the afflictions? Why can't you know Congress get things together or why can't the UN? Negotiators get things together because of afflictions. Yeah, it's, it's just very clear. Yeah. Problems in society, including our institutional structures, are rooted in people's afflictive mental states. Although this is the case, when we face personal or societal problems, we seldom look in our minds for the source of the problems. It is time that we do. The law of the land punishes people engaged in harmful actions in an effort to stop such behavior. Although punishment may make someone so uncomfortable or fearful that they temporarily stop a certain behavior, it does not bring about lasting change. That's the same for, you know, for kids, you know, if you beat a kid or make a kid terrified, you know, they, they do what you want, but it's not going to be lasting change, yeah? Because there's no wisdom involved in it. You know, real change comes when due to our wisdom, not because of, social pressure, fear of punishment, or something like that. Okay, so that doesn't bring about lasting change. Uh, Lasting change comes only from changing our mental attitude. Unless the deeper source of harmful activities is eliminated, they will continue in one form or another. We need to identify the source of problems which lies in the unsubdued mind, and employ preventative and remedial measures to tame our minds. This involves learning about the faults of afflictions and techniques to counteract them, applying these um, counter, uh, counter forces to our own minds, and then sharing them also with others. This can be done Without using Buddhist vocabulary or religious concepts, it is common sense. And this part of the beauty about Buddhism is that if you've 
really learned it and thought about it and applied it to your own mind, then you can talk about all these kinds of things in just ordinary language that anybody can understand. We don't have to use Buddhist jargon. Okay, let's pause here. Are there any questions? So there seems to be an emphasis on um, how destructive and non-virtuous anger is, you know, and that when we're unhappy, it's it could be rooted in anger and then it's non-virtuous. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't sound like there's the same for attachment, although mm-hmm. anger is rooted in attachment. Mm-hmm. So we could be happy and be creating a lot of non-virtue as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, are they equal karmic weight? Mm-hmm. I mean, are they equally virtuous? Okay. The, the thing with anger is when we're angry at not only plants, non-virtuous, uh, seeds of non-virtue in our mind, just like attachment does. But anger go- does another thing, which it is it destroys the seeds of virtue. Okay? Attachment doesn't destroy the seeds of virtue. Anger does. And you can feel that in your mind, you know, when you get really, really, really anger, angry, and then, you know, when you begin to come out of it, it's like, yeah, gee, what happened was not so good. And, yeah, I mean, you can feel that you not only put negative imprints in, but you destroyed some that were already there. Mm-hmm. My follow-up is then, then my mind flips and says, oh, well, it's better to be attached than get angry. Like, better to get the object of attachment than to not get it and be angry about it. (laughs) That sounds really good. (laughs) Yeah, I like that one. Let's all go out and get our objects of attachment because otherwise we'll get angry and, you know, anger's worse. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds really good, okay? Uh, class ended, let's go. Uh, yeah? Huh? Oh, yes, and we'll be patriotic because it's helping the economy, you know? I mean, there were more jobs. The economy is looking good. There was a good new jobs created in July, and we can really add to it by going out and consuming No, I will fight for my object of attachment. No, I have virtuous anger. Righteous. Righteous, virtuous anger. Because it's virtuous because otherwise it'll be non-virtuous, like he said. So if I fight for to get my object of attachment, that's that's good anger. Yeah. Righteous, virtuous. Oh, yeah, I'm going to head to Spokane and stand in line to get a new cell phone. That's really fun. (laughs) Yeah, standing in line for a new cell phone. Yes. Beginning of the section tonight, um, so the 
the book is talking about polluted feelings easily provoking afflictions. That makes total sense. Yeah. And then it says the second way is that there's simultaneous feelings yeah. accompany afflictive mental states. Yeah. So what's what's the trigger though? There still has to be a trigger if they're happening simultaneously. Is it contact then? Um maybe the mental state has a slight head on the feeling. Okay. <laughs> you know? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there's, you know, there's the the mental state when it's just itsy teeny weeny and then when you actually get it. So it's itsy teeny weeny bit of attachment <laughs> produces the next moment when you have great attachment and you're happy. Something like that. You can put that on the Geshe list. Yes. I'm still not clear um, the, about the sadness thing. Um, and somebody said, I, I always thought that there's a basis of anger below. When they say what? When, when uh, there's sadness, I always was, um, from my own experience, I always discovered anger below. Mm. But mm -hmm. from the talk before, I heard that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I think there's different kinds of sadness. There's... Uh, I, it makes sense to me that there would be some, very easily could be anger below the the sadness, uh, or that the sadness provokes the anger, because you're attached to something, then you can't get it, or you lose it, okay? So then you're upset and angry about that, and then, you know, you're unhappy at the same time. No, but maybe there's other kinds of sadness, like, uh, you know, when you're sad for somebody else. Somebody else had some misfortune, you know, and you and you don't have righteous anger, but uh, which is a code word for anger that you don't want to admit is anger. Um, but uh, you know, there's there's sadness, but you're not really angry about it. You accept the situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I read a story of a lama sobbing after meditating on the sufferings of beings in hell. Mm -hmm. How is this compassion a pleasant feeling? The the un the unpleasant feeling is a reaction to the suffering. Compassion knows that suffering doesn't have to exist. So I don't think that compassion necessarily starts out as a pleasant feeling. But if you have real compassion, there's a sense of hope and optimism in it because you know that suffering arises because of causes, and it's possible to stop those causes. It's not like, I'm compassionate, I whiffy do, 
love looking at people suffering and I have compassion for them. No, it's not that kind of happiness. Yeah. Uh-huh. Did Westerners have emotional needs that the Tibetans you met didn't have? Are emotional needs a result of ignorance and affliction? When you have an emotional need, how do you work with it? I think in general, yes, emotional needs. Well, some His Holiness talks in, about this in, in different ways because he says we, we are social creatures. And so, you know, uh, yeah, we're social creatures. So wanting contact with other living beings is kind of very natural. Yeah. Now, if you really dig deep about that, would be, if we were free of ignorance, would we even be born with these kind of aggregates uh, that had the need for companionship? That, that raises a whole other question. Okay? In terms of how do we work with um, emotional needs, it depends on what the need is. Okay? I think, uh, a very, you know, Marshall Rosenberg in Nonviolent Communication uh, suggests learning how to meet our own emotional needs. And I find that uh, very a very interesting thing. And when I think about it, I find that it is possible. And it also seems to me that many of the thought training teachings that we engage in uh, can work to meet our emotional needs. And I, I come back to this thing by, that's attributed to Mother Teresa, you know, when she says, when I feel, feel lonely, give me somebody to love. So when you have, uh, you know, that kind of metta or love that Venerable Seipel was talking about during the BBC today, um, that having that arise in your mind towards other beings can itself fulfill uh, our our uh, can fulfill us and alleviate the feelings of uh, sadness and loneliness and alienation. Yeah. So I think learning how to generate different mental states. Uh, within ourselves, then we can start to meet our own needs. Okay? Because the thing is, so often with our emotional needs, it feels like the only thing that could meet it is something external. Because we always feel that our happiness and suffering come from something external. Yeah? And if that were true then there would never, ever be any way to feel content. Because there's no way in the world to get everything we want and avoid everything we don't like. That's, that is impossible. Okay, so if the happiness really comes from outside, we are sunk. But if we can you know, generate uh, good mental states inside, that can bring us a sense of peace 
and fulfillment and contentment. Yeah? Without reaching for something outside or pushing something else away. But that entails work on our part. Or should I say practice? You don't have to work. You don't have to move a muscle. But we do have to move our mind. And sometimes that is harder than moving muscles. Isn't it? Yeah. Okay.